The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the chief justice that changed the presidency, John Marshall. He was one of those guys always in the middle of things, fighting alongside Washington and helping create the Constitution. But where he really shined was when our second POTUS asked him to sit on the Supreme Court. He took the new job and ran with it, creating new procedures used to this day, and most importantly, elevating the court to an independent and co-equal branch of government something presidents then and now have a love-hate relationship with. The forgotten founding father, John Marshall, next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brun. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. We're all about the presidency here at American POTUS, and occasionally we focus on the men and women who were never presidents, but still had a critical role affecting the executive branch. Chief Justice John Marshall most assuredly fits that description. We've asked author Robert Strauss to help us understand what a huge impact Marshall had on the early days of our country. Robert has written for the New York Times, Sports Illustrated, the Washington Post, as well as many others. It's his book, John Marshall, The Final Founder, that we're most interested in. Robert, my degree, by the way, is from Marshall University, so obviously I'm a big fan of this very important founding father. I can still hear the fight song. I won't sing it, but we are the sons of Marshall, sons of the great John Marshall. Oh, yeah. Welcome to American (laughs) Photos. You had a lot of sons. You know, that was the thing. I mean, you you very well could be one of the sons. (laughs) (laughs) Robert, thanks so much for joining us again on American POTUS. Marshall was born in Virginia to a very patriotic family, served in the Revolution, and then began a historic legal and political career. Can you tell us where he studied law and how he became prominent during the debates about the adoption of the U.S. Constitution? All right, that's a long question, but I'll I'll try to uh, do my usual long answer. There you go. Yeah. Marshall grows up in in an area west of uh, present-day Washington, D.C., but of course there was no Washington, D.C., so it was just west, uh, uh, viewed as west. And and his his father uh, was a surveyor, and he was a friend of uh, George Washington through surveying. And and so he followed Washington. He was sort of the, uh, when Washington goes off and fights in the French and Indian War and comes back a hero, dragging back his British general, dead British general, he sees an opportunity. And his opportunity is also with his eldest son. And he he sort of trains him, the dad, trains uh, uh, Marshall in sort of uh, athletic ways, you know, chopping down trees and running fast and whatever else uh, decides an athlete in those days and has some books at home and he gets to borrow some books from Lord Fairfax, who is the British, large British uh, landholder in uh, Virginia, uh, but a friendly guy, apparently. So Marshall 
reads a lot of whatever he reads. Pope is a big, uh, he, he's sort of like the Hemingway of the, his day. Everybody read him. But in any case, he goes off to war because uh, we're fighting. And uh, he, he does get, you know, little commissions along the way. Young Marshall, uh, older Marshall also. A- anyway, he ends up in Valley Forge. And this is why I say Marshall is the, uh, is the uh, Zelig or the Boris Gump of presidents. He's everywhere. Excuse me, presidents. Of the founders, because he's everywhere. And he starts out his sort of fame in Valley Forge. He, he's, he's forthright, and he, he's not very tall, but he's, he, he carries himself as, as a hail fellow well met. And uh, they get to Valley Forge. Now, Valley Forge was bad, but it's not as, you know, we always, we always think of Valley Forge as everybody dying and, and people freezing. Well, if everybody died, well, there wouldn't be a revolution. Right, there? right. Yeah. So I'm not saying everybody died, but more people died of disease in the spring than died in the winter, in the cold winter. Uh, mostly fetid uh, uh, areas that, uh, you know, had been uh, latrines open latrines. Anyway, but the sum of substances, he, he becomes a little hero in Valley Forge because he's sort of the athletic director and he's, he takes upon himself the way to cheer people up and he, 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 he organizes athletic games and he's said to be, uh, so, so one of the journals that I read said that these, uh, these soldiers would put uh, a bar on their heads and he would jump over it. You know, sort of the and then, and then he he had he wore regular white stockings, and and he would take his shoes off to run, and they called him Silver Heels. So you know, he, so he was sort of the Olympian of early American history. But but anyway, so he you know, he, he does uh, become a real acolyte of Washington. He's probably the you know there have been a lot of people that that were uh, fans of Washington. Hamilton certainly was. And Adam certainly was, but but there's never been a long-term acolyte like uh, like uh, Marshall. Uh, anyway, his his service ends rather early, and he comes back. By that time, his father had gotten a commission of some sort in Williamsburg, you know, a small commission. So he has nowhere to go. Well, you could go back to his home, but he says, "Well, I'll go to Williamsburg and see what that's all about." Anyway, as he's going. I know this is a roundabout way, but I'm getting to where you want to go. So, so, so he, he gets, he's coming to Williamsburg, which is uh, the capital of Virginia and uh, at the time. And, and, uh, uh, but there's a, uh, a family of three that has three daughters there, the ambulance. And, and he, uh, he he's a, a office, a, a, you know, a, a, a office holder uh, there, uh, his, the father. And they say, oh, my God, you know, this young guy, this young soldier, this young hero is coming. we got to have a party for him. And uh, the youngest of the three daughters, they're all sort of teenagers, uh, uh, is 13, Polly Ambler. And uh, she says, well, I'm going to get him, you know. And so this, uh, they have this party. And who comes in but John Marshall? But he's sort of like... You know, he looks like uh, John Boyd, Midnight Cowboy. You know, he's got a fringe jacket, and, you know, he's sort of uh, uh, shy and, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, polite and all, but, but, not, but not, you know, Christopher Reeve and Superman. But nonetheless, 13-year-old Polly 
does what she wants to do. And he is smitten with her. Well, he starts, he doesn't know exactly what he's going to do in Williamsburg. And this is where you're going to get to the law school. But uh, George Wythe is, uh, is uh, the great law teacher. He taught Jefferson, for instance. And it, it, it was sort of William and Mary uh, law school, such as it was. But basically, you went to study under him. And he goes and studies under him. And in his notes, you're not going to believe this, it's like junior high girls. He writes things like, Polly and John, you know, uh, <laughs> I forget. Anyway, so, you know, initials and hearts and all the stuff on his law notes. Well, you know, of course, he's always in their parlor and and they don't kick him out. And we hear about all this, by the way, through her older sister, who uh, uh, much like in Hamilton, you know, the older sister is the is is a, is a driving force in the family, but not marrying John Marshall, uh, just as the older sister doesn't marry uh Alexander Hamilton. So the, the father gets a, uh, a sinecure of some sort in uh, sinecure, says sinecure, sinecure, anyway, in Richmond, and he go, the family goes off to Richmond. Well, Marshall says, I'm not doing much here. I'm going to go to Richmond. And, uh, you know, so he goes to like a, a minute and a half of law school. By the way, he only went to one year of school growing up, and you find this in many, he went to one year of school, this guy, and he studied on his own. Anyway, he gets to Richmond, you know, still courting Polly, who is now all of 14, and uh, um, gets his commission to, to become a lawyer from his second cousin, Thomas Jefferson, who is the governor. Uh, so that's how he gets it. This is before they hate each other. Then that will come later. All right. So that's how he gets his start. He gets to be... Uh, a lawyer in Richmond, and he's, uh, you know, people like him, and he gets good jobs, and he becomes what uh, could be the best lawyer in Richmond. Well, this is about the founding fathers, how easy it is to be one. How many people do you think live in Richmond at the time? 2,600. Hmm. To be the best lawyer of the 2,600 people doesn't seem to be like, <laughs> that big a deal, right? I mean, it's it's like, you know, you just, it's it's like Division three. Uh, lacrosse, I don't know, you know, it's, it's way down <laughs> on the bottom of the list. But uh, but in any case, he becomes uh, a lawyer in Richmond, and then he starts his uh, his uh, political career. Oh, and you wanted me to get to the part, you know, it's sort of a jump to get to the other part. So let's save that for a moment uh, about the about the Constitution. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Thomas Jefferson, the Rocky relationship. When and why did they become so estranged? Well, it really, uh, of course, opens up later when they become uh, uh, Marshall being a Federalist uh, Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice and, and, and uh, Jefferson be, being the Republican president. But before it gets to that point, Jefferson, Jefferson is a rather insecure man. And the more you read about Jefferson, the more you wonder how, how he did all the stuff he did, uh, because he was just not he never was sure of himself, really. And uh, so Jefferson is the second cousin of Marshall because they're related through their mothers who were part of the Randolph clan. And such as they were, the Randolphs were, were uh, uh, aristocracy. You know, aristocracy meant you were here for three generations instead of two, I guess. So that, that sort of set up a little rivalry early on. But also, 
his mother-in-law, Marshall's mother-in-law, Mrs. Ambland, the mother of his wife, was a woman who spurned Jefferson. So he, Jefferson's not going to like anybody in that family, right? She was, he, 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 he asked her to marry him, and she said no. And she marries this other guy, right? And so who happens to be, you know, the father-in-law of, uh, of Marshall. So it does start off like that. And Jefferson, you know, when he's in France, he gets forgotten, really. Uh, you know, it's not like uh, CNN is broadcasting Jefferson's, you know, uh, doings over there in France. It, it, it rarely comes any news. And, uh, you know, this is post you know, Declaration of Independence and all that. And, and so uh, and Marshall is up and coming and he, 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 Jefferson, when he comes back, looks at him as a rival. So that's sort of where, where it all comes about. How did Marshall become so involved in the debates about the Constitution? you got to remember that even as late as 1790, which is a little bit after the Constitution, right? It was the first census. And when you look at the first census, Virginia has 21% of the population of the United States. 21%. I mean, that's, you think California is a big influencer? This is, you know, so you, you, you can't but one, you don't wonder anymore why so many Virginians are in the founding you know, cadre. Uh, plus, they wanted Virginia. I mean, you know, Adams picks Jefferson to write the Declaration because if we didn't pick the Virginian, nobody would believe us kind of thing. And, you know, Washington, of course, is Virginia. So uh, Virginia is, an, is a very important state in ratifying the Constitution. Well, it also has yet another founder that we forget about, Patrick Henry. Well, Patrick Henry is sort of the boss in the state. He has been. He's an orator. He's, you know, he's, he's a, a, an influential guy. And he does not want the Constitution ratified by Virginia. So the debates start happening. And Marshall takes the reins of the other side because he sees, well, first of all, he loves Washington. So the, the, he views that the federal power is the only way they're going to make it. I mean, yeah, Virginia could make it perhaps, but, but, but are we going to have little wars between, you know, uh, Virginia and South Carolina and drag North Carolina into it? Or, you know, the, he, he sees ahead how the, uh, even a confederation isn't, well, it hadn't been working, isn't going to work. So he takes upon himself for that. Well, as the states start ratifying it, you know, nine states have to ratify the Constitution before it becomes uh, law. Well, uh, in fact, uh, New Hampshire does ratify it as the ninth state. But people have come down to Virginia, the Federalists have come down. And, you know, James Madison at that time was not a Federalist, but he was a, uh, a, a Unionist or whatever you want to call it. So uh, so he was influential there. But, but Marshall took it upon himself to be the, the chief uh, orator, and they had long orations, an hours-long oration. In any way, uh, Virginia passes it by only 10 votes in the uh, 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 House of Burgesses or the Assembly or whatever uh, you, you want to call their, their meeting. It wasn't the House of Burgesses, really. Uh, it was a special constitutional convention. But, but suffice it to say, even if New Hampshire is the ninth vote, if New York and Virginia, who are... Uh, and the people in New York are waiting to see what Virginia does, uh, uh, didn't ratify it, it wouldn't be much of a union uh, without the, the two most popular states. 
he's the hero in a sense of that. So when you discuss uh, Marshall's duties later, he becomes Secretary of State under John Adams. You remind us how small the government was when you talk about those duties. He had a, a, a portfolio that's very different from today's Secretary of State. Can you tell us how what those duties were. And as part of that, tell us how Marshall managed to live in the White House even before President Adams did. Right. Well, you got to remember, there was no Washington. Right? There was no Washington when Adams becomes president. But, uh, you know, for those of who, for those of people who have seen Hamilton or heard Hamilton, you know, in the room where it happens, that's where they bargain it off. Uh, uh, Hamilton gets his bank and, uh, and uh, uh, Jefferson and Madison get their capital uh, in the South or near the South. And they finally pick out a piece of land that, that takes in part of the old towns of Georgetown and Alexandria. So they're taking a little bit of either side and it's along the Potomac. And guess what? It's near Washington's, uh, you know, millions of acres, however many acres Washington had. But anyway, there's nothing there. And people in Philadelphia still think nobody's going to leave here. I mean, we've got the capital. So it does take a while for people to, to figure out what's going on. Well, when uh, Adams, towards the end of his presidency, finds that his secretary of state, Timothy Pickering, is, is really uh, uh, ambushing him as a Hamiltonian, uh, he fires him and, or gets him to quit and, and then hires Marshall, uh, who, he, he, who he liked, and... Uh, but the Secretary of State's job, I remember the government's pretty small, and uh, it's mostly like a chief of staff. There are some treaties that they have to deal with, you know, as, as current Secretary of State's do, but, but they sort of are the jack of all trades. Uh, uh, you know, it's clear what the Treasury Secretary does. It's clear what the War Secretary does. It's not too particularly clear what the Secretary of State does early on. So uh, Adams, now the other thing people forget about, that Adams didn't know. Adams spent seven months in Quincy one time, as seven months in a row. <laughs> you know, people complain about Donald Trump golfing. I mean, he went all the way to Massachusetts, and it wasn't as if they had, uh, you know, like I said, CNN talking about what he's doing. There's a few letters that he writes to people, and you know, and he gets them down on horseback, and you know, eight days or however many it takes to get to Philadelphia. But, but in any case, uh, so, but he, he leaves one of the jobs he leaves off for uh, Marshall to do is to supervise the building of Washington, D.C. He doesn't have much. Marshall only has more or less, you know, 10 a dozen people working for him. So he's doing it, right? And uh, there's a couple of people who put up taverns, but Marshall decides you know what, this half-built building over here that's going to be the president's house, I'd rather sleep there. Yeah. So he sleeps yeah. in the White House before Adams ever does. So that's, that, that's sort of the story. So, so his job is, is to do that. And he, and he you know, mostly the, the, the two big buildings, uh, well, the three big buildings, the Treasury, uh, the White House, and the Capitol. Now, Adams appointed Marshall as Chief Justice, but his name, Marshall's name, uh, came up as a possible presidential candidate in 1800. How did that happen, and what role did he play in that very tense election? Well, guess what? So he, did, he was he was going to be uh, uh, chief justice. It, it, I guess he had, he had taken that, but he was also secretary of state. Yeah. Can you imagine what, what people <laughs> would think? 
like, ah, you know, <laughs> Biden says, you know, uh, uh, Judge uh, Roberts, uh, I, I need a good guy here in, in state. Yeah. You want to do that too? Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so no, of course not. Anyway, he has both. And uh, so he's a prominent guy. I mean, you, people, of course, don't know who John Marshall is today, pretty much. This is a, a, a man of substantial worth in the government. So the election of 1800, of course, is contentious. It wasn't cleared up uh, who, uh, what electoral votes meant uh, as pre- vice president. So uh, Adams is defeated, but uh, there's a runoff between uh, Jefferson and Burr. Uh, Aaron Burr uh, was the vice presidential candidate, but he didn't, when he saw he had the same number of electoral votes as Jefferson, he says, hmm, I'm going to, you know, stick around and see what happens. So this goes on for many days. And there's a proposal to let John Marshall be the interim president. And it didn't go much of anywhere because that's not really what people wanted. But but uh, he was respected enough and they felt several people thought that he would be, well, you know, on the right side and would would quit when they when they got the president or, or, or serve out this term and not run again or, or, or something like that. So, uh, yes, I mean, yeah, there's a smidgen of, 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 of uh, his possible presidency, but uh, I wouldn't put all that much stock in it. Thanks for listening to this episode of American POTUS, and we want to ask you a favor. Please rate and review this podcast on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate all the kind words of our listeners and guests. And if you want to know more about today's guest and his terrific book on John Marshall, more information is easy to find on AmericanPOTUS.com. Now, when he took office as Chief Justice, he was the fourth Chief Justice, if I remember correctly. Why why did he have such an expansive view of that office compared to the first three Chief Justices? Okay, well... John Jay was the first chief justice, and he was, he, uh, people will remember him as one of the writers of the Federalist Papers with uh, uh, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. And he was a governor, he, he, was a, he was a substantial guy from New York. And so, of course, he had, uh, Washington looked upon uh, himself as wanting to have another person from New York where, where the Federalists were, uh, you know, had sway. Obviously, Hamilton had influence in that way. But uh, guess what? There was nothing, there was nothing to adjudicate. He, he, there was, in, in order to have a case come before the Supreme Court, there had to be something that, that, that as a state or uh, uh, sued somebody. There were, in, the, in the first session of, um, of the Supreme Court, there was only one case and it was dismissed. So they didn't really have all that much to do as uh, Secretary of State, but uh, there needed to be a treaty signed in uh, with England, and so uh, Washington sends him to England to to uh, negotiate this treaty. Well, I mean, you know, once again, the executive branch and the and the and the uh, judiciary having the same guy. I mean, we would go nuts. I mean, people say, "Oh, the founders this, the founders that." Well, the founders did a lot of things much differently than we do. And uh, uh, so Jay goes off and negotiates this treaty. Now, 
a particularly popular treaty because Britain didn't give up much. But nonetheless, he comes back and he says, you know, enough of this. I'm going to become governor of New York. It's much better than being Supreme Court Chief Justice. So one of the justices that's there, John Rutledge, takes over, and he uh, has apparently mental health problems. And uh, he, he was going to go back to South Carolina and, and take over there. And Anyway, uh, he, he has a, a possible suicide uh, attempt on his record. So that was enough of him. And we get a Oliver Ellsworth, and a similar thing happens. There's just not much to adjudicate yet. There aren't enough suits and all that other kind of thing. And uh, he sends, Adam sends a Hillsworth off to uh, Europe to negotiate uh, about the uh, Barbary pirates and, and what they're, uh, and the quasi-war with France. And uh, what happens to Ellsworth is he gets sick when he's there. And he, you know, there aren't that many boats coming across. And he just can't make it back. And he sends a note back that I just can't make it. I got to quit. So then Marshall... Uh, is Secretary of State by this time, and he's apparently, I, I picture this as them sitting, he, he and Adams sitting at the Independence Hall in Adams' office, and they're thinking of who it can be, and they had brought up Jay to come back, and he said, no, you know, I'm happy up here in New York, and uh, Marshall puts up a couple of other names, and uh, Adams looks at him and says, no, I think it will be you. Hmm. Yeah. So he gets to be Supreme Court Chief Justice. He doesn't have much of a portfolio, except he's a Federalist. And uh, he was a smart guy, and he wanted to make something. He got, he's got this job. He wants to make something of it. Nobody's done it, right? The three guys before him have just sort of wasted time, you know. Uh, and uh, he sees the opportunity, looking at the Constitution, that the judiciary has to be the a co-equal branch, or otherwise these people kill each other. Because uh, it's not Washington anymore. It's, you know, contentiousness between the Federalists and the Republicans. I mean, the Alien Sedition Acts, they lock up even a congressman, and they lock up uh, uh, newspaper editors for just saying things that they don't like about the government. Well, this can't stand. You know, we, we, it's, if it's not this issue, it's going to be another one. And, of course, he's not particularly enamored of, of uh, the Jeffersonian ways of doing things anyway. But, but disregarding that, uh, uh, you know, they send, the, they send the Supreme Court, they find a room for the Supreme Court to meet in the basement of the Capitol, you know, in a room that's, uh, that, that apparently is on weekends uh, leased out for church services and dances. <laughs> so uh, Jeffersonians seeing uh, Marshall there, Change, change the Judiciary Act, and the, the uh, Supreme Court does not meet for almost two years into Jefferson's term. And it's waiting with this one case that Marshall has figured out, and that's Marbury versus Madison. Yeah, that's where I was going to turn next. Uh, tell us the details of that case and why it looms so large in our constitutional history. Well, you know, it's funny about law cases. I mean, you always see, you see this, especially in Supreme Court cases, the facts, when you look into the facts of the case, you wonder, well, how did that, how did that get to be the case that decided this? I mean, how did the facts of Roe versus Wade get to be what it is, or, or Dred Scott, or, or any of these cases? And Marbury versus Madison is one of those curious, and once again, cross-breeded cases. So Marbury is this uh, operator. He's 
maybe the Roger Stone, or not quite him, somebody who always gets a job in the government, uh, you know, at, at some mid-level. And, uh, you know, he helps, he helps the Secretary of the Navy find a building uh, to, uh, uh, to build in Washington, so he gets some money from him. You know, that's the kind of guy he was, Marbury. So he's looking for something, as the, he, but he becomes a Federalist. And as the Federalists are going out, he's looking for something from them, from Adams or, or somebody that could provide him some income. And so uh, there's the, the case of the Midnight Judges. You know, as the Adams is going out, when they finally decide the election, well, the election was going to be Republicans winning anyway, the, the, the uh, presidency and the uh, two uh, houses are Federalists, but it's going to change. It's going to be all Republicans. So they appoint a, an extraordinary number of judicial types. And one of the judicial types is a justice of the peace in Washington. And one of them is William Marbury. But it's coming now down to the end. And these commissions have to be signed by the Secretary of State and, or, and delivered in order to be valid. Well, you know, there's, there's the, this cartoon of, of, of uh, uh, somebody from uh, the new Secretary of State's office, Madison's office, you know, with a, with a clock ticking down as, as Marshall signs these commissions. As Secretary of State, guess what? Marshall's Secretary of State signing these commissions. Well, among the people delivering them is his brother, James. And uh, anyway, Marbury's commissioned and a few others don't get there in time. And, but imagine this. Every judicial person in the country at the federal level, and in some cases like this, uh, 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 just as a piece, is a federalist. Now, we're worried, people, the liberals are worried about a, a six to three court of conservatives. This is every judge in the whole country <laughs> is a federalist. And the Republicans have every other office, right? And, well, not every other office in the state, but the you know, presidency in the Congress. So, um, but Marbury sues because he wants this job because he's always had a job. And he has uh, uh, three of the other people who don't get the commissions on time, uh, uh, you know, are, are, are amicus briefs. But, but Madison is saying, I mean, and Jefferson is saying, forget it. You know, you damn justice of the peace. You know, forget it. You're not getting it. You know, but, but he sues. And, and, uh, uh, the case gets to the Supreme Court uh, because it's it, because he's suing the Secretary of State and one of the things that's allowed. Well, you know, this two-year break, or it was probably more about 19 months, uh, uh, it's waiting. Marshall, uh, Marshall is waiting. And the first day of the hearings comes up, and one of his Supreme Court justices, they all live together in this hotel, gets gout, and he can't make it over to the, the Capitol, the Supreme Court. So Marshall does what anybody would do in a normal little place, and he brings the Supreme Court chambers to the parlor of the hotel because the justice, I think it was Chase, could make it downstairs. And so the Marbury versus Madison is heard in the lobby, more or less, of a tavern. Anyway, Madison doesn't show up. He's not bound by anything there. There's never been a case like this. And uh, uh, Marshall hears arguments from both sides. And But he's already, he's ready for this case. And he comes up with a convoluted thing. Now, remember, 
He's the reason that this case exists. And he doesn't recuse himself, Marshall, right? Wouldn't any justice recuse themselves if they were the ones who didn't write the, didn't get delivered the, uh, the commission on time? But no. Anyway, and he has a convoluted answer, as many of them are. And he rules that Barbary should get his commission, but Madison's not under any obligation because of, uh, uh, of a, a particular part of the Judiciary Act of 1789. And uh, in any case, uh, he always wants, Marshall always wants to have both sides to get something. So what the Jeffersonians get is that Marbury isn't going to have the commission. Well, so what? Because what Marshall has done has negated a law passed by Congress because what what had happened here was the, the Judiciary Act did not agree with the Constitution, and the, the Supreme Court could review laws. This is what it proved. It could review laws. And that's the basis for the Supreme Court being in, uh, in existence. And in fact, it sort of saves the union because there is this intermediary between the executive and the uh, legislative branch. So there's where uh, Marbury versus Madison comes in. But it's a, like I said, it's a funny, convoluted case. And in, in the chambers, uh, in the back chambers of the, uh, of the uh, Supreme Court, there are uh, prints of Marbury and Marshall to inspire everybody. Now, Marshall was chief justice for an incredible 34 years. How did he run the court and how, does, how did his management then compare to how the court is managed today? He believed in... Uh, Unanimity, in a certain way. I guess it's not quite unanimity. Uh, he believed that that we discuss the cases, and however they land, you know, if they uh, at that time at the beginning there were six justices, but if they land four to two one way, we all come out. Uh, I write an opinion. This is the opinion of the court. The next time you'll be on the four side, and 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 they'll be on the two side. So he he really believed in this. In this theory of unanimity, and he 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 asked early on, they all, like I said, lived together in the same tavern. So that, obviously, the Supreme Court didn't meet for twelve months out of the year. Uh, they wrote circuit and all that. I won't get into writing circuit, but but the point is that the, they when they met, he felt they should be collegial. He he uh, had a black robe, and so he wore the black robe, and he and that meant that everybody wore just a simple robe. In fact, the robe they have one of his robes. In Richmond, and they they have a save the robe, uh, whatever you want to call it, a, a GoFundMe, and and so they're fixing it up with the sweat spots and all that. Yeah. But but uh, he this is the way he felt uh, things should be, and even the Republican justices that come on afterwards, and of course they're all Republicans after that, agree find him to be authoritative, and this is they'll do it this way. They're they're not. Uh, they don't feel that uh, it, it, the, the numbers are, are as important as the decision in any case. If you'd like more information on Robert Strauss's book on John Marshall, simply visit AmericanPOTUS.com. There's a resource section there that includes links to his works, as well as all the other guest experts we've had on the podcast. We appreciate you subscribing and listening to American POTUS.
I can't let our conversation end today without talking about one of the biggest trials in American history, the trial of former Vice President Aaron Burr, who was accused of treason. Marshall presided at that trial. How did he approach that role, and how today are his actions viewed? Well, how today are his actions viewed, I would say, is like <laughs> his hatred of Jefferson knows no bounds. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, people came to this trial. It was like the Scopes trial or, or the O.J. Simpson trial. You know, it, it, it was happening. Andrew Jackson is, is said to have uh, come to watch it, uh, you know, from Tennessee. In any case, uh, Burr is accused of treason. Uh, he probably has, a, there's probably a seed of truth in it. But, but in reality, he was just trying to, you know, get out from under. And he, he, was, uh, he was found to uh, uh, have talked to people uh, with the thoughts of um, starting a new country, or, uh, or mostly, though, in the territories, not, not, uh, not sort of taking Tennessee, although they were going through Tennessee, not sort of taking Tennessee and attaching it. And Texas would have been, you know, uh, uh, an independent country as well. It might have been Texas. But, but in, in, in any case, he did do something along those lines. So, there's, you know, the, the administration brings him in, and, and uh, uh, I, I don't know that it was like Bobby Seal in the Chicago 7 and bound him and gagged him. But, but you know, he's there in, in this really sort of showy place. And Marshall's decision uh, basically wraps around that you had to fight, have two people with eyewitness accounts of, of you doing a treasonous act, and, and he, you know, he lets him go. Uh, but there's a lot of it that says that even though Burr and Jefferson were not bosom buddies ever, he was a Republican. He was a, a, a somebody who once represented a government and, you know, he just didn't, didn't, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he just didn't feel that this was something worth dividing the country over. So finally, there, there are many worthy men who often get left out of the discussion when we talk about founding fathers, people like Roger Sherman or uh, Robert Livingston, and as you show us, John Marshall. So of those often left out of that founding father top 10, where do you think Marshall would rank? He would rank in the uh, the the top pantheon of non-presidents. Okay, right, all right, right. You know, I mean, other Hamilton. You know, yeah. If you if you find Burr to be that good, I guess you know, uh, probably at least, <laughs> or or like with Monroe, who he went to school with, by the way. Uh, you know, maybe you put him below Madison and and Washington and Jefferson. And Adams, but uh, but only because they were a little older. And Madison certainly uh, uh, was, you know. I, I guess I, I, there's a, there's certain a, a pairing of Madison and uh, Marshall because they were the intellectuals, you know, they, even more than Jefferson was. They, they, and practical men, you know, uh, uh, they, they they argued together to have the uh, the uh, Virginia sign the Constitution. And uh, I think they were probably, uh, uh, were they not in different parties, would have been close friends. So I would put him, you know, just below those the first four presidents at any rate. And, and uh, w like I say, with Hamilton, he didn't get elected president. There is something to be said for that. They could have, you know, he could have been uh, uh, running instead of Jefferson. 
or, or you know what I'm saying? Or Washington puts his little, uh, I'm not instead of Jefferson, against Jefferson, or instead of Adams, you know, could have put his uh, little uh, wand out and said, no, John, I'm sorry, it's not your turn. John, meaning John Adams, it's not your turn. So that's the way I look at it. Yeah. What about other chief justices? Do, do any rank anywhere near John Marshall? It's really hard because if you're the, it's why presidents don't rank with Washington because Washington, whatever Washington did was what we've done, you know, whatever, whatever uh, things uh, Marshall said and did, that's the way things are looked at. I mean, if you go to the Supreme Court, the, uh, uh, there's a statue of, uh, of Marshall there and then her, there's his chair. And uh, when Amy Oh, my God, why am I blanking her last name? But anyway, when the last uh, justice took the oath, the, 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 the honor is you get to sit in Marshall's chair. They bring it out and, and they give you the oath and you have your first day in Marshall's chair. So even among Supreme Court justices, who are the most elite people you can possibly find, that's a, that, he, he, there is nobody that, that, that comes to the top. The same way there is nobody that's Washington. Okay, Robert, it's time for my short and hopefully insightful questions about Chief Justice John Marshall. Considering all 46 presidents up to today, who would be his favorite president? Washington. I mean, he he was the first. Washington left his papers to Bushrod Washington, his nephew, and Bushrod was his associate justice of the Supreme Court. And he wrote, uh, he figured Marshall needed the money more. And he wrote Washington's first big biography, which, by the way, was not a success. It was it was turgid and long, and the subscriptions uh, were a lot of the subscriptions money was sent back because it didn't appear in two years. It took several more years after that. So so Marshall was not a great literati. Why why did he take that project on? Oh, because he thought he'd make money. I mean, they had this set up. I mean, had he done it right, the first the first volume had no nothing of George Washington's life in it. It was about the beginning of the country, so it was several volumes. You know, like Book of the Month Club or Book of the Year Club or Book of the Decade Club, I guess. Uh, and then from that, Mason Weems uh, took over. Uh, he was a salesman of Washington of uh, Marshall's book, and he said, "I could do it better than that." And he made, you know, he did this sort of semi-fictional version of Washington with the, with the, you know, chopping down the cherry tree and all that malarkey. And that, that book sold, uh, you know, for the next several decades. Do you have a favorite quote or moment from his interactions with all the presidents he worked with? Just the idea that he would give Andrew Jackson the oath of office and Thomas Jefferson the oath of office without quibbling, because this is what you do. You know, I mean, you don't, you know, you, you don't make sort of stupid scenes about anything. That's that's sort of what Marshall stood for. You know, some of the, you know, it, you know, I, I can make fun of myself. He, uh, one of the other uh, 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 things that I really liked about him is his his favorite thing uh, in Richmond. He had this. Uh, he started the Quoits Club. You know, much like people start equestrian clubs. And, you know, quoits is a, a horseshoe-like game that, that has uh, round pieces over a, over a stake. And that was his favorite thing to do. 
And so when he died, the Coits Club in Richmond said that he would not be replaced. There would always be an empty chair and one less person on the roster. Finally, in just one sentence, how would you describe his relationship with the executive branch? Contentious, but not necessarily so. He was a, he was, he tried to find the way to do things correctly to save the nation. Robert, what's next for you after John Marshall? What's your next topic? I have, for the last 30 years, not necessarily because of this, I've been taking oral histories of the town I grew up in, which is a suburb of uh, Philadelphia. And it's, it was a, I was assigned a story 30 years ago, the Philadelphia Inquirer magazine, on Joan Didion does Cherry Hill. Well, I didn't know who Joan Didion, well, I knew who Joan Didion was, but I didn't know what, what the editor meant. You know, he went to Princeton, so what do I know? And, and, uh, and anyway, but I became fascinated with the history of a place that had no history, you know, a suburb. And so uh, I'm going to use those oral histories that I've taken down through the years as a, uh, as a basis for a hopefully uh, Isabel Wilkerson-like book on the, the suburbs of the post-war era and how I think they were, the people were pioneers and not just people who lived in ticky-tack houses. Well, we look forward to that. And Robert, thank you again so much for joining us. A really fascinating discussion. I really appreciate you joining us on American Poets. Thanks for letting me be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens and participates in the podcast. More information on all of our terrific guests and their published works can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. And while you're there, we'd love to see your questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics. And remember to like or follow us on Facebook or Twitter so you'll be up to date on future episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our last word from John Marshall, quote, To listen well is as powerful a means of communication and influence as to talk well.